0: collection of old Nintendo games, and lately I've been revisiting the classic Legend of Zelda. In this game, you move a character, an elf called Link, around a two-dimensional map, battling monsters and finding secrets on a journey to collect the pieces of the Triforce. What you see on the screen, like in any video game, is what is being presented to you by the program. Of course, there are no trees, no caves, no monsters, and no Link. The interface is an illusion, but it is designed to be a very useful interface for completing your objectives. I'm no software engineer, but I'm pretty sure when I move Link next to a sandworm and hit the A button on my controller, I'm not actually swinging a sword and vanquishing a menacing creature. But I know that there is an effect in the program that responds to my pressing the A button, with the result that the apparent strike with the sword, causes the apparent sandworm to disappear, and often to be replaced by an apparent coin. I then press the arrow key in the direction of the apparent coin, which too disappears, and the number of coins in my treasury is increased at the top of the display by one. The actual code of the program running in the game cartridge has something in common with what I am seeing. This is clear, in that the game on the screen behaves in a coherent and reliable fashion. But what I am really doing with the game controller is having its effect in the program, not in the world that appears on the television. What appears on the television is a partial representative map of what is going on in the program. In this analogy, the real territory is the program. This causes me to wonder, what if the real world is nothing like it appears to us through our senses? From time to time, it occurs to me that the apparent world around me presented as three dimensions of space through which to move and act, and a fourth dimension of time over which such movement and action converts causes into effects, might be a complete misrepresentation of reality. Are there indeed three spatial dimensions? Or is that a kind of shorthand means of adaptively representing the environment by means of neuronal maps? We must not confuse the map with the territory. Could it be that our scientific investigations are only elucidating the map? What is the real world like? Is it anything like what we see with our eyes or feel with our fingertips? This question has long been posed and debated in epistemological philosophy. In 1710, George Berkeley published Principles of Human Knowledge. His philosophy is a kind of immaterialism because it denies the existence of a material world. He argued for idealism, the assertion that mind exists but not matter. On Berkeley's philosophy A.C. Grayling wrote the following in his his book, The History of Philosophy. The source of belief that things can exist apart from perception of them is the doctrine of abstract ideas, which Berkeley attacks in his Introduction to the Principles. Abstraction consists in separating things which can be separated only in thought, not in reality, for example, the color and the extension of a surface. Or which involves noting a feature common to many different things, and attending only to that feature and not its particular instances. In this way, we arrive at the abstract idea of, say, redness, apart from any particular red object. Abstraction is a falsifying move. What prompts the common opinion about houses and mountains is that we abstract existence from perception, and so come to believe that things can exist unperceived. But because things are ideas, And because ideas exist only if perceived by minds, the notion of absolute existence outside mind is a contradiction. So says Berkeley, to say that things exist is to say that they are perceived. And therefore, so long as they are not perceived by me, or do not exist in my mind, or that of any created spirit, they must either have no existence at all, or else subsist in the mind of some eternal spirit. And from this conclusion... Uh, follows that there is not any other substance than spirit or that which perceives. The argument in sum is therefore this. The things we encounter in episodes of perceptual experience, apples, stones, trees, are collections of ideas. Ideas are the immediate objects of awareness. To exist they must be perceived. They cannot exist without or independent of mind. Therefore mind is the substance of the world. Unquote. In order to avoid contending with this conclusion, I provided its falsification as a starting assumption in the first episode of the podcast. I declared my assumption that the material world exists and can be described by physics. I understand that there can be no ultimate proof that idealism is wrong, but I operate on the assumption that it is. By contrast, it would seem undeniable that consciousness exists. Rene Descartes has demonstrated how just about everything else can be doubted. In his Discourse on Method, Descartes wrote, "...when I considered that the very same thoughts we experienced when awake may also be experienced when we are asleep, while there is at that time not one of them true, I suppose that all the objects that uh, that had ever entered my mind when awake had in them no more truth than the illusions of my dreams." But immediately upon this I observed that whilst I thus wished to think that all was false, it was absolutely necessary that I who thus thought should be somewhat. And as I observed that this truth, I think hence I am, was so certain and of such evidence that no ground of doubt, however extravagant, could be alleged by the skeptics capable of shaking it, I concluded that I might without scruple accept it as the first principle of the philosophy of which I was in search." Descartes concluded that there are, in fact, two distinct realms, that of physics and that of the mind. The resulting doctrine is known as dualism. Immanuel Kant addressed the subject of realism and idealism in the philosophy he presented in The Critique of Pure Reason in 1781. Grayling writes, quote, we can identify Kant's aim. Recall the conflict of opinion between empiricists and rationalists in epistemology, the former arguing that the origin of knowledge lies in sensory experience, the latter arguing that reason is the only sure path to knowledge. In the technical terminology of philosophy, knowledge derived from experience is called a posteriori, knowledge, implying after experience. While knowledge derived from reason is called a priori knowledge, literally meaning before experience, but understood as meaning independently of experience." A little further on, Grayling writes, quote, What struck Kant was Hume's notion of the way our minds work as explaining the idea of causality and the related matter of inductive inference, but also our belief that a world exists independently of our experience and that each of us is an enduring self. This idea of the way our minds work was the insight that prompted Kant to develop a theory of knowledge that reconciles the rationalist and empiricist approaches. In essence, this view is that our minds handle the incoming data of sensory experience in such a way as to organize and interpret that data to make the world seem as it does. It does this by imposing an apparatus of a priori concepts upon the data the resulting marriage of data and concepts, thus constituting the world of experience. To take a homely example, think of making cookies. Flour and water are mixed and then rolled out into a flat, formless shape, onto which pastry cutters are pressed to make such various figures as circles and stars. Analogously, the faculty of mind, which processes incoming sensory data, the data of vision, hearing, and the rest acts like a set of pastry cutters imposing order and structure on the raw basic data. The faculty of mind that has this organizing function is called by Kant the understanding, and he describes it as consisting in a set of highly general concepts which it applies to the incoming data of sense, and by organizing it, thereby creating experience. He used the word intuition in its original meaning of sense experience to denote the incoming sense data. It is the marriage between the concepts of the understanding and the intuitions delivered by the senses which generates experience. The experience thus generated is experience of the world as it seems to us, the phenomenal, apparent world." I can barely believe the level of insights that were grasped by and given to us by such thinkers as Kant well before the action potential or even the neuron was discovered. We know that the currency of the brain is the action potential, and we know that it is exchanged in an organized and complex architecture. Everything that we experience, that we see, or hear, or feel, or visualize, remember, or think about, is occurring in terms of neuronal activities, not in terms of objects in the real world. As I have said before, the real world doesn't look like anything. Nevertheless, There is consistency in our perceived world, so if you see an object a short distance before you, you can walk over to it and pick it up in your hands. As you do so, the thing you see agrees in shape and texture, in form and feel. The world as it appears is predictable and internally consistent. This means that the neural structures which produce the appearance of your world do so in a predictable and internally consistent manner. But is that appearance a reliable account of reality? Maybe it's just a convenient display of relevant adaptive information. Maybe, like in The Legend of Zelda, the map bears little resemblance to the territory. When I think about maps in the brain, I am drawn to revisit Gerald Edelman. Edelman presents three important ideas to understand consciousness in his book, The Remembered Present. John Searle summarizes them well in his chapter on Edelman in The Mystery of Consciousness. Searle writes quote, The first idea central to Edelman is the notion of maps. A map is a sheet of neurons in the brain where the points of the sheet are systematically related to the corresponding points on a sheet of receptor cells. We are talking about sheets of neurons. These sheets are identified as maps because the points on them have systematic relations to the points on other sheets, and this is important for the phenomenon of re-entry, as we shall see shortly. The second idea is his theory of neuronal group selection. According to Edelman, we should not think of brain development especially in matters such as perceptual categorization and memory, as a matter of the brain learning from the impact of the environment. Rather, the brain is genetically equipped from birth with an overabundance of neuronal groups, and it develops by a mechanism which is like Darwinian natural selection. The basic point is that the brain is not an instructional mechanism, but a selectional mechanism. That is, the brain does not develop by alterations in a fixed set of neurons, but by selection processes that eliminate some neuronal groups and strengthen others. The third and most important idea is that of reentry. Reentry is a process by which parallel signals go back and forth between maps. Unquote. Edelman deals with the question at hand in this episode in a chapter about qualified realism. In this passage, when he refers to the TNGS, he is talking about his theory of neuronal group selection. Edelman writes, quote, according to the analysis of consciousness presented here, all perceptual events on which concepts and thinking are based occur as a result of continual interactions with the physical world. Events in this world detected without the aid of instruments are at scale with percipient organisms and are parallel, numerous, and dense. Furthermore, according to the TNGS, such events can be partitioned in terms of possible patterns in an infinite number of ways The density of perceptual impressions is in part a reflection of the density of world events, and in part a property of the phenotype. In any case, neural responses are much less dense than world events, despite the complexity of the brain." The reduction in density implies a massive loss of information, and the phenotype to which Edelman refers is the actual neural apparatus producing consciousness in a given organism. This implies that the world presented to us in our human minds has been cultivated by mechanisms of evolution to give us the impressions that we have. Therefore, we cannot trust the mind to reliably represent the real world. I take some comfort in the thought that our brains have evolved in a context in which at least a high degree of accordance with the real world would serve the adaptive needs of the human organism. So the objects we perceive and the ways in which they seem to behave should at least be analogous to whatever there is in the real world. This next passage describes what Edelman means by qualified realism. He writes, By taking evolutionary biology into the area of brain development and function, the TNGS and the theory of consciousness based on its assumptions leads to the view that I have called qualified realism, realism admittedly affected by phenotypic limits on sensory qualities and perceptual categorizations. Perceptual categories based on neural structures and phenotypes and the emergence of linguistic communication can lead by social transmission to relational systems of thought that can in turn be used for the scientific investigation of the world." As a scientist, I certainly hope that he is right about that. I propose that consciousness is composed of relational contents. The conscious mind is where such relationships actually exist in the universe. We do not and cannot perceive what is in the objective material sense. But internal consistency occurs in the apparent world, which exists in the mind, because the relationships uh, upon and between evolve neural maps. Back in episode 7, I considered how epiphenomenal subjective experiences could gain purchase on the objective behaviors of an ancestral organism and thereby cease to be epiphenomenal. I wondered how an early ancestral conscious animal might have gained the capacity to use its conscious experiences to produce adaptive behavior. For the current discussion, I will quote a passage from that episode. I said, Let's consider how an ancestral conscious animal might have arose with this capacity. If, for the sake of illustration, the animal had only a single sufficiently integrated neural modality to work with, it might experience a single phenomenal feature, say brightness. Subtle changes in the underlying neuronal activities which give rise to it might affect the degree of brightness. The emergent consciousness would have no means of changing its own experience, and no intrinsic preference for a given brightness over any other. And it would not necessarily have the temporal continuity to observe the dynamics occurring in its subjective brightness. So let's give the conscious system a sense of continuity, a basic working memory that provides it with a sense that the brightness is either going down, going up, or staying the same. Further, suppose a neuronal arrangement could by chance produce a causal structure wherein motor functions could be influenced directly or indirectly by the degree of brightness experienced from the point of view of the system, not only by the neural systems from which the brightness emerges. Then and only then, consciousness could be functional. Crucially, suppose that neuronal activities could evolve to produce a sense of value in the experience of brightness, a preference. A subjective point of view having a sense of continuity, a preference for certain qualia, and the capability to tinker with those qualia could pursue a higher degree of pleasant brightness or a lower degree of unpleasant brightness, as the case may be. At minimum, this exemplary consciousness would be composed of nothing more than a degree of brightness a preference for more or less or the same degree of brightness, a capacity to alter that degree, and an implicit understanding of which way the degree of brightness is changing at a given moment. The qualitative preferences which best fit the survival and productivity of the organism would be selected by nature over the preferences of its competitors. Note that it would not matter what kind of neural system had given rise to brightness, whether visual, or olfactory, or auditory, or anything else. Nor would it matter what the consciously controlled behaviors were actually doing in the material world. They could be moving arms or tentacles or vocal cords or cilia. They could be driving frontal network behaviors related to attention or learning. The only thing that would matter is whether the consciously mediated activities ultimately resulted in better outcomes for the organism. End of quote. This last part is what is important for the present discussion. I noted that it would not matter what kind of data in the real world was producing the brightness that that this simple conscious organism is experiencing. The brightness is completely produced by the neural system. It has nothing to do with the real world interacting with it. The neural system of the organism has evolved to produce an experience of brightness under certain circumstances. If the organism prefers brightness, and therefore acts to achieve and maintain it, those members of the species which experience brightness in accordance with adaptive circumstances will survive and reproduce. The result will be a conscious organism that experiences brightness under favorable conditions in the environment. But as far as the organism is concerned, the real world is composed of varying brightnesses and nothing more. Meanwhile, as we have seen, the brightness bears no direct resemblance to the real world. Secondly, I noted that it would not matter what behaviors the organism was controlling as it sought to increase the brightness. It could be controlling arms, or vocal cords, or cilia, or even attention. The organism doesn't need to know about arms, or vocal cords, or anything else that might exist in the objective world. Now imagine a more sophisticated neural architecture that evolves in the organism over time so that it has more modalities of perception, more behaviors it controls, even a body concept that distinguishes self from environment. There is nothing to guarantee that such an increase in perceptual and conceptual capabilities would reflect an improvement in accuracy to reality. We could assume that there is a correlation to reality, a kind of analogous representation of reality, but maybe our understanding of ourselves as individuals embedded in three dimensions of space, with time advancing forward, is a useful illusory construct. In The Legend of Zelda, the apparent world is a two-dimensional map with trees and castles and monsters. The game would be impossible to play without this representation on the screen, with which to guide the buttons you press on the controller. But clearly, there is no map, there are no castles or creatures, and there is no hero. In The Legend of Zelda, the code of the program running in the game cartridge is the real thing with which my controller interacts. Is it safe to assume that my behavior in life is the thought and action of this apparent human person in this apparent environment? Or might those things be convenient illusions, features on a map that bears no resemblance to the territory it describes?